Peter here is a disciple of Jesus and he's, uh, he's writing to the church, a church which is composed of Jews and non-Jews, non-Jews what are called Gentiles, uh, people from all different nations and countries. And he's reminding them of the hope and the unity that they have in Christ. From verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God, and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, and a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of wrongdoing, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There was an article in the Daily Mail uh, yesterday, or on the Daily Mail website, I'm not sure if it made it into uh, the paper, and it appeared uh, with this headline, Outrage as church leader uses his Sunday sermon to urge parishioners to vote leave. And uh, it goes on that the minister uh, was claiming that Brexit was God's view. The church in question was a Baptist church in Cambridgeshire. And the minister defended his sermon, saying he wanted to, and I quote, take a risky approach, and that he had a responsibility to inform his congregation of God's views. As you might imagine, the congregation were rather shocked by this, and at least one member of the church walked out. One churchgoer, who did not want to be named, said, I love this quote, we go to church to pray and to serve God, and not to be told how to vote in matters that have nothing to do with God. (laughs) Matters that have nothing to do with God. The referendum on Thursday is arguably the most important uh, political decision facing our country for a generation. The implications if we uh, remain in the European Union or if we leave uh, the European Union are huge for us as a country, uh, for the nation of Europe. None of us know what the future holds. At this moment, none of us uh, know how the referendum will turn out. 
as the book of Ecclesiastes reminds us, since no one knows the future, who can tell what is to come? Now, I don't presume to know the mind of God on the subject of the EU referendum. And to be really honest, I've no intention of preaching a risky sermon this morning. And like our Baptist uh, friend, I have absolutely no desire to end up in the Daily Mail. (laughs) My life is complicated enough, and I could really do without a divorce. (laughs) But I do believe that the issues that are tied up with the debate around uh, the future of Britain and the future of Europe are issues that matter deeply to God. And they should matter too to us as Christians. Does God care about politics? Should Christians care about politics? And how should our faith influence our political views? The word uh, politics comes from the Greek uh, politikos, which means the life of the city. And of course, in governments, in the, in the, in the Greek uh, day, uh, the Greek empire was governed by city-states. And uh, statesmen would sit in the, the councils of the city and make the decisions regarding uh, the future of the city and the life of the city. They would make political decisions as they sought to do the best for their cities. Does God care about the life of our cities? Does God care about the life of our communities? Does God care about the life of our nation? I think we would all say that he does. What I want to do this morning is share uh, some thoughts, some reflections as, as I've had, as I've been thinking about which way I will vote on Thursday. And the truth is, I'm not uh, fully settled on which way I will vote. What I have sought to do is to look at this issue from a Christian perspective. And as I've uh, sought to do that, I've gone to different places to try and hear uh, Christian voices on the referendum issues. Um, I have to say, though there are Christians on both sides of the debate, uh, the quality of the Christian contribution is quite poor. You're probably not surprised to discover that there is a Christians for Europe website, and all the articles there uh, in favour of Britain remaining in the EU. And there is a Christians for Britain website, all the articles there in favour from a Christian perspective of Britain leaving the European Union. And when you go to those websites, what you discover is really there's very little that is different to what you would hear elsewhere in the other campaigns. The websites are just a little bit more naff than the other ones that you've seen. Don't know if this will interest you, but this is my own, this is the only party political bit of the sermon. Uh, But Christians for Britain definitely have the worst website. And uh, they call themselves Believers. Okay. That's the level it's at, folks. So what I want to do this morning is not so much give give answers, uh, but to raise uh, questions. Uh, Jesus often uh, criticised the Pharisees of his day. Uh, for being concerned with an outward appearance or outward actions and being unconcerned about matters of the heart. 
Not so much concerned this morning with how you will vote on Thursday. I'm sure there are people among us who will vote uh, different ways. Uh, But rather to think about what's going on in your heart. What are the perspectives and the issues uh, that are stirred up in your heart about this debate? And what does God think of those matters? As I've been thinking about uh, the referendum on Thursday, I think there's three kind of key areas that have certainly struck me as important. They might have done for you, or you might have different ones uh, that are are sort of on the button for you. But there's three I'm going to address this morning. The first issue is the issue of identity. Although the actual referendum question is about whether we remain or leave uh, the European Union... I think behind much of the debate is an issue of national identity. At the start of the 21st century, how do we see ourselves as a nation? Are we English? Are we British? Are we European? What do these words mean to us? What do they mean to others? And do they still mean what we've always thought they do mean? Britain is changing rapidly. Europe is changing rapidly. And so is our sense of national identity. Our communities in the West are certainly more diverse than ever before. And at the same time, the world is more interconnected than ever before. Issues of national identity didn't really mean uh, much to me. And then I went to live in a foreign country. To my horror, I discovered that people, uh, Filipinos, would often greet me with the words, Hi Joe, meaning Hi G.I. Joe. There weren't many uh, Brits in the Philippines, but there were lots of Americans and lots of American uh, service personnel. And the kind of uh, slang for a, for a white guy was G.I. Joe. I tried to explain that I wasn't, in fact, an American. I certainly wasn't a soldier, but I was a pastor and I was a Brit. To which they would smile and say, oh yes, we get it. You're an Americano. (laughs) Uh, To be a Brit was to be a member of the 53rd state of the Union. What does it mean to be a Christian in today's world? There is a strong theme in the Bible of the requirement for Christians to be good citizens of the countries to which they belong. In the book of Jeremiah, the people of God are instructed to pray for the peace and prosperity of the city in which they find themselves in exile. They're to commit themselves to the good of that nation. In the book of Romans, the church is taught that they are still to be subject to the civic rulers and authorities that are over them, even though they persecute them. Jesus himself said that it was incumbent upon his followers to render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. There's nothing unchristian about a patriotic love for one's country. There's nothing unchristian about seeking a closer or a looser political union with one's neighbours. And of course, we'll all view these issues slightly differently. At the same time, there is a refrain which also runs through the scriptures of the dangers of idolising one's nation or of idolising one's rulers, of ascribing to them a role or a character 
that properly belongs to God alone. Time and again, the people of God are warned against the sin of idolatry, of making a God out of something that is human and created, of seeing a beauty or a perfection that doesn't really exist. And we do this when we speak as though staying in Europe or leaving Europe is the answer to all the problems that we face as a nation or a community of nations. Time and again, in the New Testament, Christians are reminded that their first allegiance is not to any earthly power or authority, but rather to him who is above and beyond all powers and all authorities. Christians should see themselves first and foremost as members not of any earthly kingdom, but rather as citizens of his heavenly kingdom. To be a Christian is to say that Jesus is Lord. And that means he has the first call upon my allegiance and my obedience and my loyalty. It's right and good for us to value our identity as Brits. Or in Christina's case, as a Norwegian. Or in Andy's case, as a Swede. Or in Johanna's case, as Irish. Or in Claire's case, as Northern Irish. And at the same time, to hold lightly to them. For our true citizenship is in heaven, and our true identity is as members of the body of Christ. Another issue at the heart of this debate is the issue of immigration. I think probably the most explosive uh, issue that's being talked about. Is there a distinctively Christian voice on this? If there is, I haven't been able to find it. But I have come across the reflections of others, and they've uh, helped to shape my thinking as a Christian. An article I read that was really helpful was by somebody called uh, Guy Brandon, who leads the Jubilee Centre, the people who are behind the Jubilee campaign for the abolition of international debt um, a number of years ago. He writes this. The Bible says little about border controls or immigration, but it says a lot about migrants. We tend to categorise migrants in terms of their reason for entry. Is it for work? Is it for study? Is it for family reasons? Is it to seek asylum? And so on. But the Bible looks at the question from a different point of view. The point of view of need and of intention. There are broadly only two categories of migrant found in the Bible. In the Hebrew, they're known as the ger and the nokri. The ger is typically described as someone who lives on the edges of society, someone who is marginalised and vulnerable. Today, they may uh, broadly correspond to what we would call a refugee or perhaps a, a destitute economic migrant. These are people who have no family or land of their own. People who in the Old Testament live hand to mouth and who are reliant upon the goodwill of the Israelites. They're frequently mentioned alongside other marginalized and landless groups who need extra protection. The book of Zechariah, we read. 
This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. The girl was generally willing to integrate into Israelite life. They were looking for a new start in every way. And they would be uh, treated in the same way as a native uh, Israelite. The Israelites were constantly reminded to look after the alien in their midst because you too, it quotes, were foreigners in Egypt. The church, as we heard in our reading, is characterized also as aliens and strangers in the world. One principle is certain as we look at this issue as Christians that we should identify with the poor and the dispossessed. And we too should feel not entirely comfortable or at home in this world with its secular culture and very different ideals to our own. That was the girl. The Bible also speaks of another kind of uh, migrant, the Nokri. This was someone who was culturally and financially independent. This was someone whose allegiances lay outside of Israel, who worshipped other gods. This was someone who potentially represented a threat to the culture of Israel. There are numerous references in the Old Testament about the Nochri and their gods leading the Israelites astray. The Bible is far more wary of the Nochri than it is of the Ger. It welcomes those who are genuinely in need, but is cautious of those who would come amongst Israel to exploit them or lead them astray. Who might the Nochri be today? You can't make a direct line from the Old Testament straight into the New Testament. Perhaps it could include those who are higher paid. Perhaps the temporary economic migrant. Perhaps those who refuse to integrate themselves in any meaningful way. Who come to our country to subvert it. Perhaps it's those wealthy individuals and corporations who domicile themselves outside of the UK and refuse to pay uh, the tax that is due. There's no simple answer to the issue of immigration. There's no simple uh, Christian response or view. But I'm convinced that as Christians we can be advocates neither of a completely open door or of a drawbridge which is drawn up. Immigration, the movement of peoples and cultures, is a complex issue. And the scriptures recognize that complexity. They urge compassion and generosity to those who are destitute, and at the same time caution wisdom and discernment regarding those whose presence might put at risk the cohesion of society and the flourishing of all. In our congregation, we have uh, solicitors who deal with uh, asylum cases. We have uh, a judge who deals, makes judgments on issues of immigration. Perhaps for them and for us, looking at the issue of immigration through the lens of what the Bible calls need and intent 
might be a useful way to look at the issue. Perhaps this could be a Christian contribution to the debate about immigration. As I've thought about that uh, lens or that window to look at the issue, need and intent, I've I've realised how far from that much of the current debate uh, in the EU referendum is. Speaking about immigration has uh, become a a debate about numbers. Uh, Do immigrants make a a net loss or a net contribution to our society? What's the cost and what's the benefits? Framed as this way, people are reduced to simple economic units. How much resources do they give us and how many resources do they take from us? And that can be, never be a Christian way of viewing those who are made in the image of God. The words of the Bible are a little lower than the angels. Third and final issue just to think about this morning and to just cause you to question how you view um, the issue is the issue of authority and accountability. All sides in this debate acknowledge the need for reform within the European Union. No one, it seems, is content with the status quo. It's difficult to understand just who makes the decisions and exactly how those affect uh, Europe's member states. Can't be denied, the EU is a large bureaucracy. It has a huge budget, and accounting for how that budget is spent is fraught with difficulties. The Bible is extremely wary of centralised power because it almost inevitably becomes distant, and then there's the danger it becomes abusive and unaccountable. The epitome of this is, of course, ancient Egypt, a highly centralised bureaucratic state, a state which enslaves the Israelites, a state ruled by a pharaoh whose word is law, who owns all the land, all the cattle, all the people. The Israelites knew what it was like to live under the yoke of empire. First the Egyptians, then the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, then the Persians, and in the time of Christ, the Romans. There's a scepticism about the power of the state and the power of empire that runs throughout the scriptures. Uh, Perhaps summarised best by the 19th century politician Lord Acton. Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Now, I'm not suggesting that the EU is akin to ancient Egypt, or that leaving the EU is like crossing the Red Sea. I don't think the EU is the many-headed beast of Revelation, nor is it the New Jerusalem or the Promised Land. But as Christians, we need to say that issues of justice and accountability and transparency do matter. As Christians, we're aware that we live not in some utopia, but a fallen world. As Christians, we testify to the power of temptation. The temptations we feel to abuse our positions of authority. As Christians, We know that all humans fail and human institutions, political institutions, are fallible and corruptible. 
as Christians, we declare that all those in authority are to govern for the common good and are ultimately accountable for their actions. As Christians, we need to be neither naive about the nature of politics, nor overly cynical. Politicians, MPs and MEPs are like us, a combination of saints and sinners, people made in the image of God, yet who often fall far short of what's required of them. Whatever future political arrangements and partnership Britain as a country forges, either within or outside of the European Union, if there is to be a governance that is truly for the good of all, then it needs to be accountable and transparent, and the rule of law has to be at the heart of those arrangements. To conclude... In 1939, the world was changing. Britain was at war and the future was far from certain. King George VI made his famous Christmas Day broadcast. At the end of his nine minutes, he said, I feel that we may all find a message of encouragement in the lines which, in my closing words, I would like to say to you. I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, Give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, Go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. That shall be to you better than light and safer than a known way. May that almighty hand guide and uphold us all. That was the prayer of King George. That should be the prayer of us too. Whichever way you vote uh, on Thursday, do so with a clear conscience and a cheerful spirit. In the name of Christ, amen.